0: Hello and welcome everyone. Joining me now, Professor Robert Springborg. Robert is a research fellow of the Italian Institute of International Affairs and adjunct professor Simon Fraser University. Formerly, he was professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School and program manager for the Middle East for the Center for Civil-Military Relations. He also served as director of the London Middle East Institute, the director of the American Research Center in Egypt. His most recent books are Egypt 2018 and Political Economies of the Middle East and North Africa 2020, both published by Polity Press. He is the editor-in-chief of the Handbook of Contemporary Egypt, published by Rutledge in 2021. Welcome to the show, Robert, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Osama. So let me kick off this conversation by asking you, on your analysis published by the Project on Middle East Democracy earlier this year, why did you describe Egypt under President Sisi as a bigger state?
1: Because of the indebtedness situation of Egypt that has become, uh, if not desperate, uh, approaching that, Uh, Egypt is one of the most heavily indebted countries in the world in terms of total amount uh... and uh, about a hundred percent of gdp as a percentage uh, of its economy the latest reports by the various rating agencies such as standard and Poor's and moody's uh... have been a very downbeat about egypt uh... moody's report uh, has degraded uh, the rating of Egypt from stable to negative, uh, and it's pointed to the significant uh, shortfall in foreign currency earnings and transfers into the country of foreign currency. So Egypt is having to, in a sense, beg uh, for its foreign exchange, which is vital to that economy, uh, beg from the IMF, uh, from Gulf countries, uh, and from elsewhere. So I think to characterize Egypt as a bigger
0: state uh, is accurate. But, you know, President Sisi raised the slogan entitled The New Republic and described himself as a brave president who took harsh economic measures that all previous Egyptian presidents escaped, such as cutting subsidies, increasing taxes, and confronting the people with the state's financial challenges. Uh, Do you think Al-Sisi's so-called economic achievement positively impacted the Egyptian economy and the Egyptian people? Well,
1: what he's done with these various uh, cancellations of long-standing social contract measures, uh, whether subsidies, uh, whether public employment, uh, whether good quality public education, uh, whether job creation, uh, right across the board, uh, Egyptians have suffered. Uh, at least uh, the bottom half of the society, if not more. Uh, and that suffering is not only a personal matter for Egyptians and their families, but it's also an economic matter in the sense that demand uh, has been undermined. Uh, because of the relatively uh, low in- family incomes in the country, uh, the demand has been profoundly uh, depressed. So. Uh, the economy consists of two things, supply and demand. Uh, and when the latter is undermined, then the provision of supply itself is affected. So you, you can say that uh, President Sisi has followed IMF guidelines for uh, restricting subsidies uh, and the like. But the consequences uh, cut in two ways. On the one hand, yes, he has uh, uh, tried, although unsuccessfully, to reduce the budget deficit, which is vital for further borrowings in foreign exchange. But on the other hand, by undermining domestic demand, he's undermined the domestic economy. So the longer that this recipe is adhered to, the greater the problems are
0: likely to be. But that the regime claimed that they are achieving a high growth rate in compared to other years or other eras. What are your thoughts about this? Well, the measure they use
1: is a gross domestic product, and Egypt has, it's true to say, been performing relatively well, around 5%, uh, even during the, the dark years of COVID-21, 22. Uh, but there are a couple of things about this. One is, uh, are these statistics to be trusted? Uh, and there's a long history of Egyptian governments fudging, uh, especially the GDP figure and so one can but assume, uh, and indeed it's been quite well documented recently by a German researcher, that the figures are not an accurate reflection of in fact the rate of uh, GDP growth. But leaving that aside, uh, there is the other matter of what does this really represent? Uh, and what it represents uh, is the significant governmental investment in infrastructure uh, that that has been the main driver of GDP growth. This is not a broadly-based growth. It is a government-dependent and infrastructural-dependent growth, rather than the, uh, growth as uh, stimulated by, let's say, broader economic participation. As GDP growth rates have been around 5%, the participation of Egyptians in, in the labor force has been steadily dropping. It's now just slightly above 40% of those in the appropriate age group who are actually working uh, at the present time. This is one of the lowest labor force participation rates in the world. Uh, and it has been steadily dropping since CC uh, uh, and the military seized power. So GDP is but one, and indeed not a terribly accurate measure, of the overall health of the economy. Uh, The labor force participation rate uh, is probably a better one, and uh, it, along with various other measures, uh, suggests that the economy uh, is underperforming and is indeed in great danger now because of the high level of indebtedness, both domestically
0: uh, and to uh, foreign lenders. Yeah, and in in your thoughts um, on Probert, who holds accountable for making Egypt a bigger state?
1: Well, both the borrower and the lender. Uh, on the one hand, Egypt has become, uh, a huge consumer of foreign currency, uh, and it has to obtain that currency largely by borrowing because foreign direct investment, which is running at four to five billion a year, uh, is something like 30% of what it was back before 2007. So foreign direct investment in Egypt, uh, is in reality, uh, quite limited. Uh, other sources of, of foreign exchange, such as through exports, uh, are uh, running at a deficit. That is, the balance of payments uh, in Egypt is running at a deficit of about $12 billion a year. Uh, so the uh, shortfall of foreign exchange, which is driven by investments uh, of a variety of sorts, including the new administrative capital and various other large infrastructural projects, can only be paid for by borrowings. And so the economy has to be structured around attraction of private capital. And that means high interest rates. Egypt has over the last three years been paying the world's second highest interest rates. It's become the second largest in debtor uh, to the IMF and it has become a favorite haven of hot money. Uh, That is to say short-term investments driven by a combination of high interest rates uh, and a peg, do- a peg currency against the dollar. Uh, now that peg was broken in March when the currency, the Egyptian pound, had to be devalued by some 15 percent because the government could no longer provide the foreign currency to sustain that peg. Uh, so at interest rates now, which are uh, something domestically 18 percent uh, being paid on the pound over the last few uh, few few months. Uh, means that something like, and the government has been very hesitant to preside, provide the exact figure. And indeed, the recent budget has not been presented in the detail in which it normally is. But the best calculations are that the interest being paid on Egypt's domestic and foreign debt hmm. is approaching 50% of total budgetary expenditures uh, and something like 40% uh, of total revenues. So when one of every two pounds that the government takes uh, is being spent on interest, you get some idea of the magnitude of the economic challenges facing the country. Hmm.
0: But um, President Sisi claimed that he's creating a new republic, and th- this cost the country billions of dollars, and he's trying to solve um, the faults of other presidents before uh, him and he received Egypt as a poor country without education, without infrastructure, without anything.
1: Well, this is a misrepresentation. Uh, in fact, uh, significant growth was achieved in Egypt uh, intermittently during the Nasser, Sadat, and Mubarak eras, uh, and the great achievements uh, of the Nasser era, for example were a significant increase in public education and public health services. Uh, they definitely were improved. Uh, and what is notable about the present government uh, is the decline in public education and public health services. Precisely the two areas uh, the upon which uh, Egyptian uh, citizens are most dependent uh, for their improvement of their welfare and their capacity to form uh, as citizens as a whole uh, and, and uh, particularly as workers has been seriously undermined by deterioration of quality of both health and education in the country and all significant ma- all measures international uh, provided by uh, the UN, World Bank and so on show that Egypt's uh, now primary uh, public educational system, is performing at something like the 134th out of 137 countries measured. It's about as bad as it can get. Uh, So that's a a very significant deterioration uh, in the overall uh, quality of human resource development in Egypt, and it's been uh, very characteristic uh, of the Sisi regime in particular, rather less so even of the Mubarak regime before. And as for broader economic growth, uh, again going back to the labor force participation rate, never has it been as low as it is now. There are more Egyptians, 60% approximately, of the Egyptian potential labor force is not working. And never before has it been anything close to that. Uh, only once in Egypt's modern history was its indebtedness anything close to what it is now, and that was uh, in the Mubarak period uh, with the collapse of oil prices in the 1980s. Uh, and it reached uh, something like 130 to 140 percent of uh, GDP, indebtedness as a proportion of GDP. Uh, and that was taken care of by Egypt's participation in the Gulf War of 1990, 1991. Uh, and much of that debt was relieved, but there are no prospects now of a debt relief of the magnitude Uh, that uh, would be required to bring the economy back into some sort of balance.
0: Yeah, and how do you see that um, the Sisi strategy to confront people with economic and financial uh, challenges and he always asking Egyptian people to share the responsibility with him and he can't do it alone, he can't do it without the people's support?
1: Well, he's right. Uh, he can't do it without the people's support, but uh, <laughs> he's making that virtually impossible. Uh, let's compare, for example, to China. What was the great uh, uh, force driving Chinese development uh, post-Mao? And it was really two things. Uh, one was foreign direct investment. Uh, China became the world's greatest sponge of uh, investment by foreigners in their economy. And that was matched with the mobilization of a a vast labor force, which was originally peasant in origin. The uh, 1.3 billion Chinese were predominantly, at that stage, uh, rural in uh, uh, residence, and they had to urbanize and engage in the modern economy if they were going to improve their standards of living. And that's precisely what the Chinese government did. It opened up the economy to uh, what it started really in relatively small-scale uh, development spread right throughout the country. There were some central nodes of investment, but the opportunities for uh, you know, small Chinese entrepreneurs hmm. to develop businesses uh, were, were profound. Uh, they took advantage of them. And so labor force participation rates in China became extraordinarily high, 65, 70 percent in some cases. So uh, you had a combination of money coming into China and of uh, the Chinese being mobilized into the, into the labor force. And um, that's what drove Chinese development. Now, in Egypt, by contrast, a foreign direct investment now at running less than $5 billion a year, uh, is uh, quite limited, and it's concentrated in the hydrocarbon sector and in basically tourism and real estate. Uh, these are not job-creating sectors anything like was the situation in China. The other aspect of it is education. The Chinese ruralized their education system to reach out to people throughout the country to enable them to not only become literate, uh, but to begin to access then secondary uh, and tertiary education. And so there was a huge increase in the uh, the human resource capacities of the Chinese. This is not at all the case in Egypt, uh, that the uh, 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 performance, as I mentioned, of primary education is appallingly bad, and it goes on from that, and it's worse in rural areas. And it's one of the most highly skewed uh, performances Uh, of any educational system in the world. That is to say, the predictor of education in Egypt uh, of of profound importance is level of income. Uh, Egypt has done very, very little to improve the educational chances uh, and the performance of poor Egyptians. Uh, And unlike the Chinese, who have managed to mobilize vast numbers, hundreds of millions of poor Chinese, into their uh, a secondary and tertiary educational system, Egypt has not done that. But uh, in your and report, so the um, labor force is not equipped, even yeah. if you had foreign direct investment of significant magnitudes, the labor force is not equipped to take advantage of it. So it's failing on both sides.
0: Okay. Um, President Sisi, two or three weeks ago, he um, said in the Ansar a statement that if the Egyptian people want education development, they can lose electricity. So why a president of a country like Egypt connects between the education development and the presence of electricity in uh, Egyptian houses?
1: Well, the the approach that the president has taken is to uh, provide opportunities for those who support him uh, and to deny opportunities to those who don't. Uh, and so the educational system has been reshaped around uh, uh, various institutions which feed into the state itself and, most importantly, into the security system. Uh, and if uh, uh, we look more carefully into some of the institutions of that educational system, um, some of them appear to be modeled quite directly on the uh, fascist regimes. Uh, of other countries, not the least of them, mean Germany under Hitler, uh, so this is not broadly based education. this is the idea of an elitist education to recruit supporters of the state to be used in pursuing uh, the states uh, and the rulers of that state's agendas as opposed to a broad based development uh, such as I say is one had in china
0: yeah and and back to the the, the foreign uh, debts and the foreign supports. Uh, From uh, Egyptian regime. Last week, I hosted the senior researcher at Carnegie Institution, Professor Yazid Saig, who predicted that as long as the Gulf countries continue to support Sisi regime financially, it could survive for a period to come. And we also, what happened a few days ago, the Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman visited Egypt and signed economic agreements with Sisi worth $7 billion. So what do you think, Robert? To what extent can the Egyptian economy survive with the help of these Gulf funds?
1: Well, I think the economy uh, uh, and the polity uh, uh, will survive. I'm not suggesting that uh, either is going to collapse uh, overnight. It's a question of, of what level. Uh, the magnitude of a need is, is really quite profound. We're talking of an economy that has a GDP of something like $350 billion a year. Yes, agreements have been signed by the Gulf states uh, increasingly in the form of investments and purchases of state assets in Egypt. So Mohammed bin Zayed, for example... Uh, did renew uh, a deposit by the Emirati government in Egypt Central Bank, but at the same time, further provision of capital took the form of purchasing um, government shares in the amount of about 25 percent of the total shares issued of, of, of CIB, the biggest bank in Egypt, of Abuir fertilizer, one of the most profitable uh, companies in the country, and of this uh, Fowry, uh, a new uh, uh, electronic uh, financial institution. Uh, so, like the Emiratis, the other uh, Gulf rulers are deciding that they are going to pick up some assets relatively cheaply, and that they are not going to just give CC a free reign by putting money in the central bank that he can do what he likes with. They are going to be in the driver's seat deciding. Uh, where the money goes uh, and, indeed, are going to benefit from it. So there is going to be a price to pay uh, for Egypt of its dependence on the Gulf. Uh, it's not going to be an, sort of an open blank check as it was back in 2013 hmm. when Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in particular wanted Sisi to come to power and consolidate his rule. Now there are some differences between them. Uh, there is a certain amount of distrust. Uh, and so they are uh, being uh, uh, more restrictive in what they're doing. And we must uh, finally add that it was a condition of a new IMF loan that CC obtained funds from the Gulf countries. Uh, and so they understood that. And so they have provided some money because it's in their interest for the IMF to provide what will only be something like two to three billion, not very much money. Uh, but if the IMF were not to do it, then it would threaten economic collapse, and this would be politically and economically bad uh, yeah. for the Gulf states. So to some extent, they're also uh, being held to account by virtue of the very parlous state of the Egyptian economy. They don't want Sisi to collapse entirely, but they don't want him to be independent either. Uh, and so they're walking a, a, a fine line economically and
0: politically. Yeah, and talking about collapsing the the, the economic or the political regime in, in Egypt, you warned before, Robert, that Egypt is facing the danger of economic collapse in Lebanon. So, does this mean that Egypt is vulnerable to bankruptcy soon?
1: Well, uh, of that magnitude, probably not, but not for economic reasons. Uh, it's Egypt is too big to fail. Too many people have an interest in in salvaging Egypt, whereas not enough had an interest in salvaging Lebanon. Uh, and Lebanon was too small to succeed, if you will, and Egypt is, is uh, too big to fail. But the fundamental economic management strategy of the Sisi regime is very similar to that of Lebanon's. And what it has been uh, is a profound dependence uh, on borrowings, and especially foreign borrowings. Uh, and to make that possible, Egypt has had to pay what amounts to the world's highest or second-highest interest rates, and that, in turn, uh, also required them to try to hold inflation uh, uh, down, partly uh, and indeed mainly, uh, by pegging the Egyptian pound, to the American dollar. Uh, and over time, what this did was suck capital Uh, out of the private sector and out of the hands of individuals and into the hands of government. Virtually all the, the in the case of Lebanon, about 80% of bank assets were being loaned to the government. Now, I haven't seen an overall figure of the Egyptian uh, bank portfolios uh, and where their loans uh, are being directed, but I think one can assume beyond a doubt uh, that uh, well over half of all loan funds provided by the Egyptian banking sector uh, are going into the government, which means others are not getting it. So the economy is being starved of capital precisely when it's borrowing more and more money, uh, because the money is being used to support the government. Uh, so uh, in that sense, it's identical to Lebanon. Uh, but there are those who are willing to continue to support Egypt, economically and politically, because they don't want it to collapse. Uh, but the private sector, the global private sector, the hot money that flowed into Egypt has flowed out. Uh, 20 billion went out back in uh, with the beginning of COVID. Another 20 billion has come out now in the wake of Ukraine. Uh, and as Moody's report issued three weeks ago said, it's very unlikely significant foreign currencies are going to go back in again. So uh, this, is, uh, this is an economy that is resembles the Lebanese one, but for political reasons largely, uh, it's going to be kept uh, on drip feed by the IMF, by the Gulf States uh, and by some other governments around the world that want CC uh, to continue in power.
0: So uh, from your perspective, the main pillars uh, to, to prevent this economic collapse in Egypt, Gulf aids, European countries want Sisi to stay in power. And what about the military? What about the Egyptian army?
1: Well, the Egyptian military uh, it is more a symbol uh, of the power of the state than it is an effective operational force. Uh, and it is understood by Egypt's friends that Sisi depends upon the military uh, for as his primary base of political support. And that that military in turn requires a certain amount of patronage. Some of the patronage uh, is in the form of the military economy in Egypt, uh, which provides jobs to officers, active duty and retired, and some of that patronage is in the form of uh, weaponry uh, for Egypt to be able to uh, at least claim that it is uh, one of the world's leading military powers. Uh, and so for the past several years Egypt has been one of the uh, top five purchasers of military equipment globally. Uh, this is a, a remarkable phenomenon, given the fact Egypt is a lower middle-income country. No other lower middle-income country in history has ever spent so much money on arms as a proportion of its total assets. Uh, So the military uh, is seen as a a key to maintaining Sisi in power, and those who want him to stay in power, therefore, continue to support a military. Uh, But it's notable to add that this military has actually done nothing. Uh, It has not uh, intervened uh, in Yemen Yemen or in Libya. Uh, It has uh, not managed to totally subdue. The insurrection, uh, in the Sinai, uh, and indeed it has not managed to, uh, um, bring about its autonomy from the suppliers of the weaponry that it obtains from overseas. Uh, Egypt started taking F-16s back in the 1980s. Egypt is still depending on American contractors to uh, maintain those aircraft. Uh, it isn't despite an agreement that was reached in the 1980s that Egypt would be able to, that Egypt would commit and implement uh, the training programs necessary to maintain uh, the F-16s, it has still not been able to do so. So just as in the case with dependence on American military technicians, so is the case with regard to the Rafael planes, so dependent upon French technicians with the Italians uh, with a couple of their ships, uh, with uh, the Russians and their Sukhois, and, and so on and so forth. So the Egyptian military is profoundly dependent on the outside world for its operations. Uh, and so it, based, it makes it virtually impossible for Egypt to conduct significant military operations without the support of those foreign partners. And that places severe limits on what Egypt could ever hope to do uh, with its military.
0: And in your analysis, Robert, uh, follow the money to the truth about al-Sisi's uh, Egypt, you wrote an I quote, al-Sisi who uh, came to power through a military coup relies on the woe factor of mega-projects and weapons purchases to bolster his legitimacy. What did you mean by the woe factor of mega-projects and why it is vital, fundamental to Sisi?
1: Well, it's... Uh, <clears throat> It's not. this is a, a, a time-tested method by dictators. The wow factor is to sort of overwhelm publics and to make them think that the leader in the regime that they had uh, is uh, so superlative it borders on being a deity. Um, I suppose we can uh, hark back to the pharaonic era for exactly that. Uh, so the wow factor is to sort of dehumanize the country, to say, well, you're merely a human in the face of a regime that's superhuman, uh, that it has all these uh, big projects, it has all these weapons, it has all this uh, uh, fine presentation of itself. So who could I, as simply a humble Egyptian, uh, ever hope to challenge that regime? So it's an, it's an attempt to sort of overwhelm citizens and to to if you will degrade them. Uh, and it's what Hitler did, it's what Stalin did, it's what Sisi's doing. Uh and unfortunately it's being backed by the supporters of Sisi, whether in the Europe, the United States, Russia, China, uh the whole world is supporting him. But we must remember the whole world supported the Shah of Iran as well.
0: And um, you said uh, Egyptians under Sisi rule are paying more and getting less. These were your own words. Do you expect another uh, rebellion or revolution based on economic reasons, not political ones?
1: Well, I, I, I'm not suggesting there is going to be a revolution. A, a revolution requires organization. Hmm. Uh, and the opposition organization is fragmented and weak. So... Uh, you can have chaos, uh, and I think that's much more likely than a revolution, and the chaos would be driven by economic need. Uh, you, we're all familiar with the increase in poverty in the country. Um, it's running around a third uh, of all Egyptians are now uh, living in poverty, which is on less than a cents a day. Uh, and given inflation in Egypt, running now at 15%, uh, it's inevitable that uh, a significant increase in that poverty level uh, it, it, it is going to happen. It's already happening. Uh, now, this is coupled with the decline of public services. It's not just that incomes are down, it's that the public services, whether health or education, uh, public transportation, uh, uh, provision of water, uh, all the basic uh, inputs into life for Egyptians, Hmm. Uh, are becoming uh, more expensive and more difficult to access. Uh, So the pressure on Egyptians uh, is huge. Uh, And uh, little by little there will be manifestations of discontent popping up, I suppose, in villages uh, different parts of uh, Cairo, Alex, and elsewhere. Uh, Does that amount to a revolution? No, it amounts to a discontent of people who will voice their protests in various ways, And at some stage, it's not inconceivable that what would happen in one of these places would begin to stimulate reactions elsewhere. Hmm. So if that's a revolution, yes, it's possible. But I think it's more chaos and outbreak of violence. Then the question is, what does the regime do? And it's in that response that everything would lie. How would it deal with widespread protests of a popular sort just uh, in an upsurge, in different parts of the country. And that would determine the fate of the Sisi regime.
0: So, do you think it's unlikely to um, have another um, Arab Spring wave in Egypt?
1: No, I don't think there's another uh, Arab Spring uh, in Egypt's future. The Arab Spring, in, uh, not only in Egypt but elsewhere, was essentially a, a middle class movement. Uh, and it was a peaceful protest. Uh, and it uh, the regimes in power at the time in the various countries, uh, especially let's, let's stick with Egypt with this, was not a fascist regime. Uh, the Mubarak regime had already opened up a considerable amount, both economically and politically, uh, and provided space for political opposition and political organization. The Sisi regime reversed that. There is no space. There is no buffer between the Sisi regime and what might happen in the street. Uh, and so the confrontation would be much more profound and inevitably much more violent than it was in
0: 2011. And during the last eight years, Robert, Sisi built strong ties with Gulf countries, did many arms deals with European countries, reconciliation with Turkey and Qatar, and maintained a strong alliance with Israel. So uh, although the declining economic situation, do you think Sisi has the stability he needs to stay in office?
1: Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, it's clear to everyone, uh, whether in Egypt or outside, that the country is facing an economic crisis uh, and that its capacity to deal with that economic crisis uh, is limited. Uh, and so, what we, the responses we've seen in the last few weeks uh, are reflective of Sisi's lack of, quote, of imagination. Uh, so, the economic reforms that were announced a couple of weeks ago in the form of privatization of something like a hundred more, more than a hundred sectors of the Egyptian economy, a list of 79 sectors uh, that are to be entirely abandoned by the government, um, some 30 in which the government would prevail, and some 40 sectors in which there would be um, a mixture of government and private uh, involvement. Uh, all of this uh, is a nonsense. Uh, this, where did this list come from? What economic strategy is behind this list? Uh, no such explanation. There are no economists now in Egypt uh, of note who are providing alternative uh, models and plans, strategies for how to deal with the crisis. The economists who are working for the government are all, in fact, financial people. Now, they're not economists in the broader sense. And their job is to try to get foreign exchange. Uh, and so the idea then of privatization is simply to sell off whatever you can to get some foreign exchange. This is not an economic strategy, and the world knows it. Yeah. Uh, as of the rating agencies and so on. So this approach is exactly what was done in Lebanon back in 2018. It's a carbon copy of the same thing. At a political level, the announcement of a national dialogue, which is in the process of being formed as we speak here, uh is, uh, if compared to the national dialogues conducted in Egypt, in Jordan, uh, uh, in various other Arab countries, Tunisia, Morocco, back in the 1980s when there was pressure because of the downturn of oil prices, this is the most pathetic national dialogue that I, I have ever seen. Uh, and the other ones led nowhere uh, because they were Shiraz. But at least there was some opening to the opposition to speak freely, to express themselves, to complain, and so on. That's not on offer here in the national dialogue that's being put forward. So the point of these two examples of the, quote, economic reforms and of the, quote, political dialogue is for Sisi to show that he's uh, responding to these pressures. But these responses are are simply inadequate uh, and seem to be such. Uh, and so Sisi's. Ability to deal with the crisis at hand is being questioned, uh, and there are undoubtedly people within the regime itself who think that this man is not capable of leading Egypt out of the out of the morass in which it is currently found. Uh, and so, if things get worse, then the question becomes: What might uh, the reactions be by those who are in a position? to remove him from the inside actually be. So this has got, got to be something that's concerning CC. And he's gonna to have to spend more and more time on coup-proofing uh, and ensuring that his intelligence agents are keeping up the speed on on uh, uh, protecting him. And this will make it get more difficult uh, for him to actually uh, guide Egypt to uh, a Do you think, better Robert, th-
0: this is an important one. Do, do you think there is someone or some um people from inside the, the regime, from inside the military, they want to eliminate CC from the office?
1: Uh, look, at, I have no uh, access to uh, classified information. Uh, as you know, in the public sphere, there is little of anything. Um, so we're reliant upon rumors, uh, and don't forget, Sisi came from military intelligence. Uh, his family has been heavily involved in intelligence activities of one sort or another. Uh, No one from Nasser on uh, has ever paid as much attention to coup-proofing, to security and intelligence matters, uh, as has President Sisi. So uh, this is not an easy target for someone who would want to remove him. Uh, And so it would be a challenge. But are there those who think that this man is dragging Egypt down? The answer is undoubtedly yes. Uh, So how do you then translate dissatisfaction? with his rule, into something else. Uh, and I suspect that some little trigger could come along, and then suddenly you'd see quite a few people, names you would recognize, people with significant backgrounds in the regime and in previous regimes yep. uh, would be stepping forward, uh, and they in turn would have support. So it's not at all inconceivable that uh, he could be removed, uh, but uh, I would not want to uh, bet my family jewels on that.
0: Okay. But uh, you were talking um, uh, previously about the economic strategies. And the Egyptian Minister of Finance, Mohamed Maid, said before that the state uh, will keep borrowing to repay the external debts, interest. How do you see this economic policy? Um, I'm not sure if you consider this as a strategy or as a joke, actually. But based on external borrowing, we will keep borrowing to repay our well,
1: you may recall that Fouad uh, uh, Salame, who was uh, the central banker of the year back in, I believe it was 1994, <laughs> in Lebanon, uh, and who's now been indicted uh, for various charges of embezzlement and so on, mm. uh, and who's possibly the most unpopular man in Lebanon, uh, he said the same thing. Uh, it was, well, there's no worry about borrowing. As long as people are willing to uh, lend money to us, we just keep happily borrowing. And interest rates under uh, Salame's tenure, and he's still head of the Lebanese Central Bank, at one stage reached 27%. Uh, now, uh, Egypt is not the 27% yet, but it's closing in on that. Uh, and this is clearly unsustainable. So <clears throat> the finance minister's uh, statement about, well, we're just borrowed to uh, uh, repay the interest, uh, is reflective of the absence of any economic strategy to deal with the debt itself. Uh, and this is simply a band-aid put on an open sore, which is the the reasons why debt is being accumulated. Uh, and the fundamental reason is the economy is not performing. Uh, that it has been in a steady state of decline as measured by any meaningful measure for the past four or five years. Uh, and it's structural. It is not just due to the Ukraine. It is not just due to COVID. It's structural in nature. Uh, and so borrowing to pay interest, uh, is a strategy to suck more money out of that economy and accelerate the downward trend. So this is, this is a statement that will come back to haunt that minister.
0: Yeah. And in your article, Robert, titled Egypt, the secret of seven decades of military rule, uh, you wrote uh, to um, Middle East, I, and I quote, the more desperate circumstances become, the more the military can justify its rule as the backbone and preserver of the nation. How do you explain that?
1: Well, this is, uh, again, uh, one of the characteristics <clears throat> of this type of regime that basically what it's saying is chaos or us either you put up with our authoritarianism and repression and control, or you're going to have, it used to be called the Lebanization, uh, and now you could call it the Libanization, or the Yemenization, uh, or the Syrianization uh, of our country. Uh, and so it's sort of like the gun to the head of the population to say, either you put up with uh, the military running everything, uh, or the whole country is going to collapse. Uh, now, uh, this logic, uh, of course, ignores the fact that the principal reason why the Egyptian economy uh, has underperformed its capacities for the past 70 years, uh, is that the military has been running it. Uh, the military is the cause of the problem, it's not the solution of the problem. Uh, all of these military regimes, not just in Egypt, but in uh, the other countries where they've been tried, where are those militaries have run economies such as Pakistan, for example, such as Brazil under the military, such as Argentina. All of these military economies have been run into the ground, uh, and so the the threat that without us there is chaos may be true, but it's only true in the short term, because under the military you're guaranteed over the long term to have underperformance economically, and in the case of Egypt, a, a population growth rate. Uh, that is placing ever greater pressure on all aspects of the country, whether the economy, the environment, um, uh, Egypt's place in the world. Uh, and so it's a hollow threat, is, is in my mind, that uh, if you have to have stability at the price of the well-being of your existence and of your freedom, then maybe stability is not such a great thing.
0: Yeah, I, I can't finish this interview without asking this question, Roberts. and forgive me. What's your best Egyptian food? Is it mulukhiya?
1: <laughs> well, unfortunately, when you live outside of Egypt, you can't get fresh mulukhiya, So you have to get the frozen version. And uh, my wife and I uh, have to laugh. My wife, being born and raised in Egypt, uh, and a great cooker of mulchia, uh we have to get Turkish mulukhiya uh, frozen. And it's a testament. That the Egypt's national food is actually being exported not by Egypt but by Turkey, <laughs> uh, and I would say Egypt could do a much better job in a specialized manufacturing and production of foodstuffs and other things. And let's start with mulukhiya.
0: I I am I like mulukhiya from your your words. Thank you very much, Robert Springberg, for being with me today.
1: Osama, thank you for having me.
0: Oh.